and welcome back to another episode of the TV That Changed Me podcast. I'm Beth Watson and today we're talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So as it's almost Halloween, today is a bit of a spooky special. Not only are we talking about vampires, ghouls, ghosts, etc. in the glorious show that is Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but I'm also doing it with my spooky doppelganger, the other Beth Watson. Earlier this year, over the summer, I was sent a DM on Instagram from somebody who was also called Beth Watson. Basically, she had discovered me through a misunderstanding (laughs) about this podcast, which we'll talk about when we get to the interview part of the show, uh, and had discovered that we have not only the same name, but the same hair color, the same interests. We both have a podcast. We both love talking about popular culture, and we're both queer. So... At first, we were both really spooked out and we're like, what is this? Is this some kind of a scammer? And then after a short while, we realized that this kind of serendipity deserves a podcast episode to celebrate it. And after a little bit of chatting, we realized we're both massive fans of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and we're both huge fans of the episode Doppelgang Land, which is all about doppelgangers. So, yeah, spooky season, doppelgangers talking about doppelgangers in the spookiest show of all, Buffy. And I hope you enjoy it. Tell me everything. So tell me, like... the whole name stuff from your perspective like what's the journey the Beth Watson journey (laughs) how did I get my name or how did I discover you you had it (laughs) uh how did you discover I had it okay I discovered you had it because I was working with Coco Brown and she was like have I been she was like off topic from what we were working on have I been um emailing you about a podcast and I was like no I don't think so why and she was like just is your surname Watson and I was like yeah and she was like just because I've been emailing a Beth Watson and I think I assumed that it was you but then I didn't want to be like oh bringing up the podcast if you were like wanting to work on the show and I was like and I was like that's not me <laughs> and she was like is there another Beth Watson and I was like not that I know of and she's like is your email this and I was like no (laughs) and then I and then I had to like stop my rehearsals and google you because I was like this is so this is too weird like I'm someone impersonating me and they found you I was like no it seems to be another genuine Beth Watson and not like an imposter pretending to be me (laughs) oh my god that's so weird you know in kind of like I don't know you never think about people talking about you when you're not there really you kind of like I always think when I'm not around I cease to exist I don't know but like it's really weird that that happened but funnily enough I kind of knew you existed because I had been um writing some stuff for Brighton Fringe I think yeah uh for Broadway Baby for Brighton Fringe and then I was like retweeting something and I saw that you had like retweeted something really really similar 
And then I, I think I was like, I clicked on your Twitter and I was like, oh, <laughs> this person has like also got my name, also into theatre, also brown hair, also like queer question mark so I was like a feminist question mark I was, I was like okay yeah do you think you're unique in this life it was such a weird experience because I I think I'd googled our name and got like a load of Americans right yes and had never like somehow I managed to avoid like stumbling across anything you'd written for Broadway Baby or worked for Brighton Frit because like I guess if you google my name and theatre like some of the stuff that comes up is me but I'd never like scrolled down far enough to hit any of the stuff that or notice anything that wasn't me I think if my name and Broadway Baby came up I'd assume that like rather than being like, did I write something that I've forgotten about? I would assume that, like, my name was mentioned on the same page as something else. Yeah, you're basically telling me my name has bad SEO, and um, that's okay. But... <laughs> I think both of our names have bad SEO, because how are people going to define which, like, if someone wants to search for you, how are they not going to get me? If someone wants to search for me, how are they not going to get you? We just have to make sure that our career goals align and then we're going to look super successful and, like, we're doing, like, amazingly in in all aspects of the world. It's like, how? oh, wow, she produces theatre shows and she has two podcasts and she and she's, works in marketing. Yeah, because Coco was like, Coco was like, um, like, didn't you like review one of my shows? And I was like, no, I've never reviewed one of your shows. Yeah, I reviewed one of her shows. And I was like, this is like, and I was like, in my mind, I was like, I've never reviewed for like any website. There's no way that's me. But I was also kind of like, is it like a parallel universe me? <laughs> because I easily could have like written written reviews for things but I just don't and that's not what I do and I was like is there like a sliding doors version of me where I'm like writing reviews for Broadway baby (laughs) so plausible yeah I mean there is and it's me um (laughs) I am the parallel universe you with like just slightly different slightly different hobbies and interests like so slight (laughs) yeah like so slight so yeah. What um what else about you do I need to know before we begin? Um, so my name's Beth. I am a performer, I am a theatre maker and drag king, and I also do a podcast that's about gender and theatre. So I'm the founder and co-director of Bechtel Theatre. I am the creator of Queer Diary and Hasbian. Hasbian is my solo show about growing up as a queer teenager in Brighton during Section 28. And uh, Queer Diary is my night where um, I invite other people to come and read their teenage diaries live for an audience, previously on Zoom, once in real life in person. I'm a drag king and I'm part of a drag king collective called The Family Jewels. Today we're going to talk about Buffy, which I'm absolutely over the moon about because I haven't revisited Buffy since I watched it as a child. So I was watching it this week and I was just like, this show is so fucking good. 
what have I been doing not watching it as an adult? It's amazing. And I just kind of wanted to start by asking, what's your relationship to Buffy? So it started in this country in 98, I think, shortly after it debuted in the US, which is the year I started secondary school. So I guess my relationship to Buffy is that it was on for the five years that I was at secondary school from 1998 to 2003. And it was the biggest TV show amongst me and my friends. We like it was the the one where we tuned in every week and like came into school and was like, oh, my God, did you watch Buffy last night? And if you hadn't watched Buffy, you'd feel really left out and you'd hope that someone else had taped it on VHS and you could borrow it from them and watch it. And I. What channel? Do you remember what channel it was on? I feel I, I feel like it was on BBC Two, but is that me being? Yeah, I think it might have moved. Um, I know because I know in the US it moved, it moved networks at one point, and I think in the UK I think it was on BBC Two, but I also have a memory of it having adverts, so I think it might have moved at some point potentially the same point where it moved in the US because maybe there was a relationship between the US network and the UK network. Um, I also know that it got repeated um, because I remember at one point it was on one of the later seasons and I was watching like whenever they whenever on another channel like it was a bit later on so we'd got cable by that point and we had like potentially the sci-fi channel um and it would the sci-fi channel which would show like also quite a lot of like horror and fantasy and superhero stuff and basically like anything vaguely nerdy and um I remember like the older episodes being repeated on another channel um or potentially even late late at night as well so there was like an opportunity to kind of catch up and revisit because I remember being on one of the later series of Buffy and not being as into it and being delighted that I could revisit some of the earlier seasons when it was a bit more like Monster of the Week format and a bit more like, oh, it's just about like scary stuff and people snogging each other isn't the main plot line. And um, like it was just, it was a bit more kind of campy and silly, whereas towards the end it got a bit like serious and soap opery. Um, and I think I always lean towards the campy. I was thinking, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the progression of Harry Potter, how that started off as like something very like fun and sort of campy and childish. And then through the books and the films obviously got a lot more serious. I was thinking that about um, Buffy, how it kind of like grew up with the audience a little bit. Um, and the way she sort of, when she gets to college, it gets a bit sexier and a bit darker. And I was, I just thought that was like an interesting progression. Yeah, there's that episode where she and Riley have so much sex that they generate they like awaken a load of ghosts in a frat house because they just like can't stop having sex they're like possessed and they can't stop having sex with each other and it's a really horrible episode to be honest because it's just the two of them humping the whole time yeah I was thinking that I used to watch it with my dad and my dad used to really love watching Buffy and now thinking back I'm like (laughs) Was my dad just like really into Sarah Michelle Gellar? And I was like, just this like 10 year old, just kind of sat watching it and not really understanding all of the sex stuff. I'm now like a little bit freaked out thinking about how much sexual content actually is in Buffy. <laughs> yeah, it especially like as the series got later on and they look like got older, but I guess that sort of like um, maybe mirrored my like 
like growing maturity as well like when I was watching it when I was like 12 or 13 they were like holding hands and snogging and then when I was watching it when I was like 15 or 16 they were getting a little bit more serious (laughs) I know and then I was uh, thinking about the storyline with her and Spike as well and how like sexually like the description I read was like sexually violent relationship and I was like yeah it was that was a very sort of like odd part of the series that I'd never really thought about before yeah and like Spiker's like was interesting because like she went for Angel who had like a bad boy image but was ultimately like in my opinion a bit of a wet blanket um I wasn't a fan uh but then Spike was like the actual bad boy and then oh guess what turns out he actually does bad stuff and it's it's bad so I felt like I don't know it 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 sort of um I guess it acted sort of realistically in a way that was like he was always set up to be a baddie and he actually was their relationship was quite bad (laughs) Um, but it didn't hold I think I guess it didn't hold like a huge amount of um like it didn't hold a huge amount of blame on Buffy for like you know it wasn't like Buffy was sort of being punished for being sexual um I think um but it was definitely like oh he's a bad person can I like make him good no you can't yeah and that's fair enough. That's that's a good message, as I guess. Don't try and change people. But so when you were kind of growing up and you were watching it with your mates, reporting back after all the episodes, why why do you think Buffy had such a big big impact on you and other people your age? I think for me it was because well it was just everything that I loved it was like a bit supernatural a bit like kind of gothy like I was really into like horror movies and vampires and all of that kind of stuff anyway like I think even from like a very early age I was like I used to like prefer Roald Dahl stories to Enid Blyton story you know like the kind of kid who's into the kind of weird side of life um and I've also never really been into um like as I said the the end of the of the series like season six seven where it starts to get a bit more soap opery like I was never really into that kind of side of storytelling I was always into kind of horror movie type storytelling um where it's like there's a baddie, there's a goodie, they have a big fight, there's some jokes along the way, like horror movies, action movies, sci-fi, all of that kind of thing, much more my scene than like the kind of Dawson's Creek style programming that I think was often aimed at like teenagers of my age, like teenage girls in particular were expected to be into like romance and friendship drama and I was just not really, I was like, and I still I'm not really into that kind of thing. I I think it was like the aspect of like having something that was weird and wonderful, but also rooted at the same time, like had enough root in reality, like tipped that balance whereby it wasn't something that was so fantastical, like, I don't know, Star Trek or the Lord of the Rings or whatever, which I kind of liked casually, but couldn't quite get into because they didn't feel connected enough to the real world. And Buffy kind of walked that perfect line between 
being really fantastical and really like high energy, high drama, high stakes in terms of people die all the time. There are scary monsters and CGI, but also had that rooting in like, it's actually about her relationship with her mom and her friends. And, but we're not just telling the story of that relationship. It's telling that story of the relationship through monsters, which definitely appealed to my little goth heart as a teenager. And also retrospectively looking at how present um, like themes around queerness were in not not only in the bit where um, this is a spoiler inclusive podcast, right? That's our spoiler klaxon telling you the next few minutes of the show will contain TV spoilers. Skip ahead if you haven't watched the show yet. Because I know somebody who recently rewatched it and they didn't know that Willow was going to end up in a relationship with a girl. And they were like, oh my God, Willow's gay. And um, and so even, but even prior to that relationship, even prior to Willow and Tara becoming a couple, the queer themes are there and very obviously present in the show, uh, which I can kind of see now retrospectively and also like, retrospectively see in myself at that age so I now retrospectively look at myself as like an 11 12 year old watching the first couple of seasons of Buffy and thinking the show didn't know it was queer yet but it was still it had an inkling and um like I didn't know about being queer yet or what that meant but had an inkling and it seems like a very prescient parallel the fact that it started at the same year that I started secondary school and then finished when I finished secondary school (laughs) And is that, was the end of secondary school when you sort of realised that you were queer as well? I was, I was quite an early, um, early adopter (laughs) in terms of queerness. (laughs) Just a cool trend that I kind of, I don't know, I was kind of gay before it was cool. Yeah, (laughs) I totally invented it. Uh, No, I was, um, so I grew up in Brighton and um, Brighton, for anyone who doesn't know, is the UK gay capital. And Uh, So I was, I guess, more aware of queer culture than many kids might have been in other parts of the country um, or in earlier generations. Um, And so I grew up in a town where even though it was um, still the 90s and there wasn't same sex marriage yet, there wasn't even civil partnerships, um, but in... Brighton they used to have tiny little rainbow flags in some of the shop windows to indicate that it was yeah just about okay um and we used to have pride so pride was like a regular thing in Brighton and my parents had loads of gay friends um and so I was sort of felt quite able and free at a much earlier age than I guess a lot of people to uh, to realize that this was part of my identity and and I think I was also like massively privileged in that in in terms of like you know growing up in a household where it wasn't like it it wasn't like ever held up as like a bad thing to be so I guess although there was like homophobic bullying in the playgrounds and although there was section 28 so we actually weren't allowed to learn about any LGBTQ stuff in school um my parents had like gay friends and my teachers were a lot of them were probably queer but not allowed to come out so there was like an atmosphere of like 
a level of acceptance which probably isn't really paralleled in a lot of people my age being into Buffy was like linked to that being being the weird kid in the same way that being queer was it was like I'm like I always saw myself as like a bit of an oddball a bit of a like I was bullied in primary school and then when I got to secondary school I was like screw you guys I'm just gonna be weird and you're gonna have to handle it <laughs> um was was my kind of response to having been having been bullied quite badly when like as a small child um and realizing quite early on that I wasn't gonna fit in I was able to sort of embrace queerness and so as that kid at school who was very like yeah whatever just deal with it um I think there was almost like a it felt like a bit of a letdown that there wasn't more representation for us in pop culture because I think not to be like we were trendsetters but we were slightly ahead of time in terms of how accepting we were of ourselves and each other as a friendship group and so therefore to like look at teenage magazines and always see the like in the problem page it'd be like I think I'm gay what do I do and then being like it's normal to have crushes on your friends it doesn't necessarily mean you're gay and then you turn the page and it's like which boy do you have a crush on that's the only option and it's like well you're on the one page saying it's okay if you are gay but you might not be and then on another page it says oh do you have a crush on Leonardo DiCaprio or like any of the other like lookalike options um was very kind of like sigh where is where is our representation where is our pop culture and Buffy like increasingly as as it went on through the series is started to provide that so one of the episodes we said we'd catch up on was how do you say it doppelgalan doppelgangland no. yeah how, how do I think it's like it? doppelgangland as in like a land full of doppelgangers doppelgangland is the episode we caught up on and we watched before the show and that's maybe the first inkling we get that Willow is attracted to women um I think that's the it's the it's the episode that flags it up the clearest I think Willow licks a load of necks of girls. <laughs> she, so the episode of Doppelgangland, for anyone who doesn't remember, um, is the episode where a basically rift in um, a temporal fold, they call it, where like there's like a, a, a slip in the parallel universes, like a hole is created so that some, something from one parallel universe can bleed into another. And... Uh, there is a parallel universe in Buffy, which is established like earlier on in an earlier episode. There is a parallel universe where Buffy never came to Sunnydale and half the main characters in the show are vampires. And Vampire Willow is a great character who appears in The Wish and then later in four or five episodes down the line reappears in Doppelgangland where she basically escapes through this temporal fold and ends up in the the like show version of Sunnydale rather than the power rather than the parallel universe version where she belongs and so uh vampire willow comes kind of rampaging her way around Sunnydale while also on the like sweet mission of just trying to find her way back to her own world um it's a little bit like um a vampiric Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz she finds herself um in a new world and so she runs around um, vampiring people and like 
her way of vampiring people is she doesn't just like stick her teeth in them she like licks their necks beforehand and so she goes up to quite a few different women in Sunnydale and like licks their necks and then there's a point where she meets um like normal willow and vamp willow like is kind of coming on to normal willow and normal willow's like oh it's weird get off me and vamp willow is like mm, touchy touchy <laughs> and it's all done through like some at the time i'm sure very groundbreaking cgi of like alison hannigan itself superimposed on alison hannigan using all these doubles so they had like you know double du- body double versions of um, normal willow and vampire willow and the like difference between them is very uh kind of starkly identified because uh normal willow who's like prone to wearing kind of childish clothes anyway is wearing like a particularly fluffy pink sweater um and vampire willow is dressed head to toe in like red and black leather and like dark lipstick and is very like um and then and then when um when so when normal willow discovers vamp willow she says um oh i think i i i'm so skanky and i think kind of (laughs) gay and there's this moment where willow where buffy goes oh yeah but like that's not you though that's the that's the vampire and the, the demon inside the vampire is nothing to do with the person as they were in life and Angel, who's a vampire, is like, well, actually. And that's like the first hint that the audience gets that Willow might not be completely straight. Um, those of us who have been watching through a queer 13-year-old lens had already picked up on the fact that Willow wears a lot of dungarees. Um, <laughs> which, <laughs> particularly in first the late... sign. <laughs> Particularly in the late 90s was like, yeah, definitely something that I recognised from the queer culture of having been brought up in Brighton, that there were particular women who wore dungarees more often than others who more often got married to or held hands with other ladies. And mm, that is something that I yeah. had, I think, unknowingly observed and and was like, it's, it's those kinds of things where it's like, you're not necessarily like exposed to like all of the like educational stuff of here's what queer identities are but when you're walking down the street and you notice that there's a particular style of dress that's often goes hand in hand with the you know people who call themselves dykes on bikes quite proudly will often be wearing leathers in the same way that vamp willow um (laughs) and it's i know it's It's those subtle hints Yeah, I think that I definitely, when I was younger, before I even knew any sort of like gay or queer stereotypes and wouldn't have known to call them that, I definitely had heard of dungarees and Doc Martens as like a lesbian stereotype that I was like, didn't really, like, I never really internalized that and never never really understood what it meant. And then when I grew up, I was like, oh yeah, I guess that is a stereotype that's kind of true. And then um, the other thing as well is that I found... Yeah, that the fact that the vampire hair is all in leather and in black and sort of vampy, it's just so cute. It's like the kink. I yeah. really liked the idea of like Willow's true kink coming out in like her doppelganger and her recognizing it and being like, oh, I'm kind of skanky and gay. And like, she's not mad about it. <laughs> yeah, she's just like, well, she's 
almost as though she's discovering another side to herself which she hasn't yet explored um yeah it's quite like <laughs> when you look back at it now it's quite obviously flagged but then there's subtle stuff that like I don't even know like in so in the wish which is the episode that's a few episodes before Doppelgangland where Vamp Willow first appears um Vamp Willow is in a relationship with vampire Xander and uh Willow and Xander at this point have like I think they like Willow had a crush on him for ages and then they like accidentally snogged and they like both of them were in relationships with other people and so there was a big drama around that um but then in the alternative universe vampire willow and vampire xander are very like sexy together and so um there's like that side of it that the audience has already been given this hint that there is a commonality there is a similarity between human willow and vamp willow in that like vamp willow is slightly allowing human willow to like live without though without those constructs of like oh no we can't be together because we're in relationships with other people or like you know it's it vamp willow can acknowledge the lust that she's always harbored for xander and like allow that to play out to its full extent there's also a line in wish which i not watched which i noticed during this recent rewatch which is where um willow and vamp willow and vamp xander are doing like some evil together and they're like uh i think they're like going to chase a damsel in distress and Willow goes, Vamp Willow turns to Vamp Xander and goes, oh, I love this part. And Xander goes, you love all the parts. And I watched it this time and I was like, Willow is a bisexual. (laughs) I know that later on, Joss Whedon wrote in that she was gay because he was too afraid of putting bisexual representation onto um, mainstream TV uh and you know the networks wouldn't allow it or you know some rubbish like that but there are hints all the way through that um willow just isn't going to conform to the boxes of gay or straight yeah and i think she really did have feelings for xander and for the character oz that yes. seth green plays as and well so did i think i she have feelings, feelings for, oz. for those people yeah <laughs> Totally. And I think you're right. And I think at the time, I got a really good stat, actually, that I wanted to tell you. It said that at the heyday of Willow and Tara's relationship, 2% of TV characters at the time were queer. I think this was in 2001, 92% of which were gay men. Wow. So I just loved that. And then, um, and that was from the Children Now Primetime Diversity Report. (laughs) <laughs> whatever that is and um there I just thought that was amazing because like it shows just how rare it was to have Willow as a primetime tv tv character who is queer and a main and it, character as well yeah and a main character and not maligned in any way I mean eventually maligned but at first not at first it's like the relationship is not really seen to be a problem I think I think although there are problems with the, like, the representation, I guess the representation of Willow's queerness isn't perfect, but you can see that it, you can tell, I think, that it was done quite carefully. So the scene where Willow comes out to Buffy, I think, is 
a real strong attempt to be like, let's not like gloss over this and pretend that isn't that this isn't a quite a stressful conversation to Willow for Willow to have that Buffy is just going to be like la 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 everything's fine straight away but also um it's it's done in a way that it is okay actually and so so when the conversation happens where um Willow is basically saying to Buffy and Key to my earlier point that I think Willow is a bi-icon um key point is that willow when she comes out to buffy doesn't say i'm gay i'm a lesbian she doesn't define her her sexuality in those terms she says that she's in love with tara and willow and buffy is like oh that's great willow that's really really great will um that's cool, Will. Thanks for telling me, Will. No, I'm fine, Will. And like, just keeps saying Willow's name over and over again. And Willow's like, why are you being weird? And she's like, not being weird, Will. What? And she's like, why do you keep saying my name? And I think that that representation of like Buffy's like, like slight awkwardness of like not knowing how to handle it, but then very quickly getting over that awkwardness and realizing that, you know, this doesn't really change anything is, was very kind of, well thought through for all the kids it was there for all the teenagers who were like oh god what might my friends say when I'm coming out and they didn't want to I think offer a version of it that was you know all sunshine and rainbows where all your friends are just gonna be like well we're gonna throw your big coming out party and put loads of rainbows everywhere which um my friendship group might have done but isn't probably most people's experience so I think they they got the balance really well between making a realistic depiction of it not being easy to be queer, but also not having the queer character traumatised by that coming out process and not making the coming out thing like a huge, like, cliffhanger plot line uh, or making, like, her relationship starts off and it's a bit on the down low, but it's not, like, hidden. So they don't, like, there's not, there's not, although Willow and Tara's relationship remains are named for quite a long time. You don't get scenes where they're like, oh my God, quick, someone's coming. Let's pretend we weren't holding hands or anything like that. Um, and so it, it, I think it was quite conscious in its depiction of their relationship. And they did fight quite hard against censors for them to be able to like express physical affection for each other in the same way as um, like, you know, straight couples were allowed to and um I think it doesn't always get it right because sometimes it does border on them being like um like weirdly desexualized in a way in the way that they're like always wearing like really really long dresses and they're like it's almost like they were worried about over sexualizing them so they've like they put them in this very like cozy like um I don't know those those like all those long sleeves and stuff that Willow and Tara wear that just feel a little bit like uh, mumsy at times. Um, that yeah. I I guess so. So that's what I mean by like it's not perfect. And there's lines like oh my god in the musical episode which I bloody love, of course, of course, all Buffy fans do. But there's a line in the musical episode right before Tara sings her song, where one of them says, "I'm not big with the butch." And it's like, what the hell does that mean? 
like I'm not big with the butch. Is that like saying like, oh, I'm not keen on butches? No, it was saying, saying I'm, I'm not, not butch. I'm not butch. Yeah, right. But but it was like it was very. It was just a very weird way. It was like a clumsy way of phrasing it, in that you could tell that that line wasn't probably written by someone who has butch as part of their like daily lexicon yeah I think it's really interesting the depiction of like queer women and um in the sort of 90s and noughties I think you were either like a butch comedic character or you were allowed to be in love or you were allowed to be sexy like you're either okay either like a butch comedic character or you're femme and then you're allowed to be sexy and then by sexy you're allowed to be in love when I see that he was pushing against the um sexualization a bit of queer women by making them dress in sort of uh drab clothes but he also let them be this kind of like devilish witchy pair of like deviants a little bit as well I don't know (laughs) I was reading an article the other I was reading an article about it that was basically saying it's kind of playing into the idea of like lesbianism as morally wrong and sort of witchy and occult and I was like but that's kind of cool I don't know (laughs) I don't know I don't really see that as necessarily such a bad thing for those of us who wanted to be witchy and who grew up with like the West Witch is one of my favourite books. And and also like um the you know, movies like The Craft had come out just before Buffy, which were very like, oh kind of alternative girls bonding together without necessarily needing to like centre their love lives in in who they are. And, you know, that movie has its own problems. But like I definitely looked at movies like that and depictions of kind of witchiness as linked to like girls existing in their own right and like mm. you know 90s feminism I guess <laughs> it sounds from the research I've done it does look like Whedon 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 did um yeah I know it does sound like he really pushed for them to be a couple and in the episode the body in which spoiler that's our spoiler klaxon telling you the next few minutes of the show will contain tv spoilers skip ahead if you haven't watched the show yet oh my Um, god Buffy's mum dies um he apparently really pushed for them to have a, a kiss like to calm Willow down because she's so shocked about the death of Buffy's mum and that's amazing he was obviously like for some reason like really down with the queers but then when you get all of this other stuff of like oh he was kind of like abusive on set there were these um there's um been all of the stuff come out from the actress who actor who played Cordelia yeah um saying that he uh called her fat when she was pregnant and was like like a kind of like an abusive boss essentially I'm I'm just really confused about what his where his moral values lie as a person I think yes I have a lot of thoughts about that I I'm, I'm quite glad that I never got into like into the kind of behind the scenes world of Buffy enough to like have built up the kind of idolizing of him that a lot of Buffy fans had I consume pop culture I think very much on a like 
especially as a teenager, like on a surface level of like, who are the actors? Who are the characters? And didn't really think about who was writing it or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think my take on him is that he's a massive egotist who um, wanted to give him, who had enough, who has enough values to want to give himself a big pat on the back for being a great feminist. And so it's mm. this classic thing of like wanting to do, wanting to sh- be shown to be doing the work but like actually fudging it behind the scenes and not really doing the internal side of it like Mm. so doing the whole I want to do representation of women I want to do queer representation but actually not addressing his own attitudes towards women and his own like you know biases in that way and like not applying it to how he treats people in his daily life like wanting to headline it in all of his work to potentially like I don't know at worst conceal the fact that he had plenty of misogyny which we see come out in the characters that he says he like related to being Xander or to being the trio of nerds like he obviously like recognized it in himself enough to sort of kind of parody it and skewer it in those male characters but didn't recognize it enough enable to enable him to like get rid of it in his behavior and I think being the head you know the like head of this incredibly successful tv show probably fed his like I've done the work tick tick go me good job joffs like attitude whereby he saw him probably began I imagine to see himself as sort of like king of the feminists to the point where he could just take advantage of people and he would ne- never be able to do any wrong because he'd created Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I think, obviously, like, when you're doing surface-level tick-box feminism, you end up getting some getting somewhere because there are certain things that have changed hugely for the better because of shows like Buffy, but also it's only going to go so far and also risks the people behind it like doing damage or being harmed um because it's not actual feminism um and and I mean I I also like really want to acknowledge that there were loads of other people working on that show and that everyone who came out um in kind of to back up Charisma Carpenter who was the one that said that initially kind of broke the seal and said he was an asshole, not her words, mine. Um, but a lot of the people who came out and kind of backed her up said, yes, but we still loved being on Buffy. And the relationships that we made with each other were more important than that. And I think the fact that the show was not just Joss Whedon sat alone in his room creating, it only came about because of all the other actors and writers and directors who were part of it. Um, Marty Noxon, who was a woman who was like, you know... Um, in a huge part of the Buffy team I think she started as a writer and then was went on to become like one of the producers or exec directors or somebody big like that like I don't really know about the background of TV but um I know that she I know that Marty Noxon wrote a load of my favorite episodes and also was brought up by two mums had like a queer household Mm -hmm. and so like it wasn't just Joss in his room, although he seems like a bit of a um, control freak in terms of he had this vision for what he wanted the character arc to be. And if he said it, it would be done. Um, however, I think he also 
had enough about him to surround himself with some other really brilliant people, many of whom did have or were close enough to the lived experience of like um, queerness and like sexism and things like that to be able to inject some authenticity where he might have been missing the mark. And so I, you know, I think a lot of what makes can make TV really good is is where it becomes a really collaborative art form where there's a writer's room, not just a singular voice. And the people in those writers' rooms are different, diverse, have their own perspectives, their own experiences. And the people who are marginalised in those groups are given this like as much of an opportunity to tell their own version of yeah. their own story. Which I, I think is... Yeah, and maybe that's why, I don't know, I don't know. And that's why Buffy, like, maybe was so successful, despite. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Despite <laughs> despite him not being um, the feminist that he proclaimed to be in all yeah, of his life. Exactly. But I think, like, in terms of, I guess, creating a good space to, um, a good space for those people's voices to be heard, like, I don't know if he did do that or was always capable of doing that in terms of he might have had those voices in the room but not listen to them as much as he could have done and so therefore mm-hmm. we see those failings of like where the lines don't hit right or the characters seem underdeveloped and actually particularly thinking about like um diversity in writers room I'm I'm pretty sure from what I've heard and read about Buffy the writers room was incredibly white and that's resulted mm. in, when you watch it back now, some incredibly ranging from underdeveloped to problematic to deeply offensive um, depictions of like race uh, in, and racialized characters in Buffy, which I think is one of the massively glaring things, like as a as a twenty twenty one rewatch, um, to kind of note like note and recognize that I like. I'm pretty I was pretty shocked by some of it like not in the sense of being like surprised that you know these things are being badly depicted in a show by white man but um in terms of it being like so glaring so glaring Mm, Um, yeah can you give an example oh my god there's a horrendous Thanksgiving episode which like starts off do you remember the Thanksgiving episode? I know it's ringing a bell, and I feel like something in my stomach, which is like anxiety. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. As soon as the episode started, I'd I'd like forgotten that the episode even because it doesn't really like either stand out as a good episode or further the plot. I'd I'd like completely forgotten that it even existed, and then when when it came on as the rewatch, I was like, oh shit! And it basically like. Um, Willow starts by going hey guys do you think we should be celebrating um, Thanksgiving because isn't it really problematic that we're like having this great big meal in like honour of the fact that our ancestors slayed all of the like Native Americans and Willow kind of flags it and I'm like okay that's not something that I saw in a lot of 90s TV Thanksgiving episodes Um, I guess apart from Adam's family Um, where it's it's explored but then the whole like monster of the week plot line hinges on like a vengeful native american ghost who 
like every time he appears there's like drums playing in the background and it's just the worst stereotype of like I have come to avenge my people like it's just it's it's a pure stereotype and it it like it does that thing that I was saying about like Joss's feminism isn't it touches it acknowledges Thanksgiving is problematic we need to do something to talk about this but then it like it just they just I think the Native American character just gets killed at the end and it's like, oh, and then move on to the next episode. Like they, they, there's no, um, there's no real, and, and also like the, they've been awakened by like an object in a museum and it's, and it's, it feels to me um, like they're placing that experience of like Native American people very much in like the past and history and ghosts mm. rather than like having any, there representing like who are those communities now like who lives in in the in the native american communities in california at the moment and what like what's happening to them in the year 2000 and what is their what is their voice and what is their like what do they have to say about thanksgiving you know it was very much just like oh let's get in uh, another like basically silent character to be a trope um and even in the musical episode as well, there's been criticism of the fact that the um, the like uh, Broadway dancing ghost is like played by a black actor in like a kind of devilly costume, with like a zoot suit, like kind of like nine like a nineteen forties suit that would be like is is particularly associated with black performers, and he like just like tap dances and again it feels like it's playing into a stereotype and he preys on like uh Buffy's sister the young vulnerable white girl and it feels like it's playing into stereotypes about you know um predatory black men it feels like every time there is a character not every time but like a lot of the time when there is a character who isn't white in Buffy they will be Oh, also in the final season when they have all the slayers come in and there's one of them is Asian and and there's like, oh, all the jokes about her not understanding English. And it's like, they're supposed to have rounded up slayers from all across the world. And they have like one Latina slayer, one East Asian slayer and like one black slayer. And they, that it's like, oh, that's all of the slayers in the world, is it? And the one like um, East Asian woman is basically silent or she doesn't understand or she's you know she's confused all the time and it just yeah it's race in Buffy is 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 not good I think you've like made me really think about Joss Whedon's approach to characterization as well it's just like you I kind of I feel it a lot with Buffy I feel like it's as she is very much like a tropey Xena warrior princessy person. Like she's feminist in the way that she saves herself. She's like going against the stereotype of like a blonde woman in a dark alley. But then the like hypersexualization of her in later seasons, where she's like, you know, the storyline with like um, with was was it with Riley and the sex all episode, and then the Spike storyline where he's like attempts to rape her, like trigger warning is like very, it's just exactly the same thing. It's like, it's paying lip service to like these things of like, oh, we want like women characters to be well fleshed out, but then it's completely falling into the same traps of like all of the tropey nonsense that 
you experienced beforehand. Yeah, it really um, is. And they're all so thin and they're all so what we'd call conventionally attractive. There's, you know, there's not a broad amount of diversity in terms of um, like the kind, even the kinds of like white cis women that Joss is representing that he's like oh we've got a blonde we've got a redhead we've got a brunette but they're all gonna have exactly the same body type (laughs) and they're all gonna like have exactly like really like similar facial features as well like you know they all kind of like got these tiny little button noses and they all look like they wouldn't be out of place in like cheerleader outfits so exactly yeah but I mean Saying all that, it's an incredible show. (laughs) (laughs) Saying all that um, and about, you know, the problematic politics and Joss Whedon's, you know, being a knobhead. um, I think uh, I also have been watching it at the same time as watching for the first time, which I actually haven't finished yet, so don't spoil it, um, The Sopranos. And I'm Mm. noticing that they were on at the same time. That the attitude towards The Sopranos is this reverence of like the greatest TV show of all time. And it's like upheld as this like um, big beast in like the way people talk about pop culture and television. But I've noticed a lot of parallels in terms of character arc and character development and the way characters um, in both Buffy and The Sopranos are in there for the long run. You have characters that come out from the sidelines and become a main character. You have characters yeah. who are, you know, who make mistakes and who learn and who are um, really complicated. You have it, even like The Sopranos in terms of like um, having certain episodes that are centered around like a kind of problem of the week rather than a monster of the week. But like, you know, you will have like standalone episodes and you will have that they then link in with the broader arc of like the character growth of the main characters and all their relationships are like in a similar way to to how Buffy is. It's like not just a gangster show, it's a gangster show, but it's actually all about the relationships. The same way Buffy's like not just a monster show, it's not just, you know, um, the Twilight Zone or the Addams Family or whatever, it's actually about their relationships. And that, that kind of idea of having a TV show where you have a genre and you use the tropes of the genre to actually explore kind of like depths and um like truths about human behavior and and human um kind of interactions and also another thing that both Buffy and the Sopranos do is play with some real surreal shit like what we were talking about doppelgangland the idea of like parallel universes and like the um in sopranos like you have like all tony's like dream world stuff and all of this stuff that happens in the like kind of dream universe of tony soprano um i think is very much it's done similarly in buffy in that they they use Mm -hmm. these like strange episodes that happen like well you know a character is like asleep or in a coma or um, like going through a crisis or under a spell and all of this stuff to explore the kind of the unsaid between the characters and the psychology of what's going on underneath their kind of everyday behavior. And then you see their everyday behavior in a different way because you've like seen into their psyche in a way. And I just think it's interesting how um, still when I hear Buffy referred to casually in conversations, it's like, oh my God, lol, Buffy pop culture, 90s fashion. Um, 
and and the sopranos is oh my god narrative storytelling it's like a novel but it's a tv show and actually like i think it's interesting the way i see both of those tv shows talked about in different ways and it's quite obvious to me that like buffy is is just as strong as the as the sopranos in terms of character development in terms of balancing comedy and drama in terms of creating a a like long lasting arc and yet is not given half the the like accreditation of being a groundbreaking like um epoch defining piece of culture i totally uh, like i totally agree with that comparison and something that comes up so much like talking about different tv shows on the podcast is like the way that anything that's liked by teen girls is generally like depreciated and like often snubbed for emmys and i'm like so the episode the body where her mum dies i feel like that might have been nominated for or won an award potentially yeah because that's an incredibly clever episode and i think the way that you are convinced throughout that episode that something paranormal is going on with her mum dying and you you're double you're uh, second guessing all the time um about whether or not like this is just a curse or this is just some sort of parallel universe like that is such a clever episode because it's so stripped back and there is very little magical presence in it um and I just think the way that that was that was played on was just like incredibly clever and well done and yeah, people love The Sopranos. I've had so many boys tell me they want to come on the podcast and talk about Sopranos. Um, well, it's really interesting. How what a surprise. So I'm just going to ask you one final question. Um, and that's, let's say somebody had been living under a rock and had never heard of Buffy, never seen it, and was about to embark upon it. How would you persuade them to watch it? Well, it depends who they are. <laughs> Whether, what hook I would use um, for like a lot of people now if they're in my kind of social circle if they're like queer millennials I would be like go back and look because it's um, queerer than you thought than you remember um, it's um, cleverer than you remember uh, it's funnier than you remember and all the fashions are back in fashion now um scarier than you remember hush is a terrifying episode gives you nightmares also in terms of what you were just saying about the body like it's depictions of things like grief and things like relationships you know there's a moment where oz like defines his relationship boundaries to willow it's like you know there's some really grown-up conversations between those characters when characters die it's dealt with in like quite a mature way in that like i think you know it does exemplify the fact that I th- I believe that Joss Whedon had like experiences of grief. I think he uh, lost his mum. And I think this is like the strength of where he is telling from lived mm. experience. It really shines. That's where the moments where the show kind of, you know, where, where it's um, depicting something that something like losing someone close to you that a lot of people can relate to. And it does it in just a really powerful way and I'd say yeah there's a lot more to it than the like fun cds that you remember listening to on the soundtrack and the like (laughs) cool leather skirts even though they are a really fun part of it um I would also like refer them back to um you know uh if it was a younger person like 
or if it was somebody with like teenagers I would refer them back to like what it meant to me as a teenager and particularly as a kid that didn't fit in and and how you know we would like there's bits in my teenage diary about how we've like stayed up all night looking at the reading the scripts of Buffy to the Vampire Slayer on the internet and how much those characters meant to it like that like we would have like a row over there would be like a Oz doll on sale in a shop and like a row over who was going to buy it and who fancied Oz the more um uh, because I did I did fancy Oz and Tara and (laughs) that's why Willow's character even though she says gay now um is a bisexual icon I totally agree. And that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Beth, for coming on the show. Is there anything you want to plug? Oh, yeah. Um, My own stuff. Uh, So I am the creator of a project called Queer Diary, uh, where I read diary entries and invite other queer people to come and read diary entries um, about, they don't have to be about Buffy, but, you know, um, about pop culture or like whatever you've, you know, drama you had going on in your life. It doesn't have to be diaries as well. Like people come and they read like poetry, they read fan fiction, they read, somebody came and read like a, a review of a film that they'd been to see as a teenager. Um, and written as a teenager um, so that's really fun um, and I also host a podcast although it has been on a break for the pandemic <laughs> unlike every other podcast which started during the pandemic we've been on a break for the pandemic but that's called Bechdel Theatre like the Bechdel Test B-E-C-H-D-E-L and it's about uh, gender and representation on stage things so you can follow Bechdel Theatre you can follow me you can follow Hasbian Show on all social media Hasbian H-A-S-B-I-A-N those are all the things you can follow me and I'm at Beth what can I do on all the social media thank you so much for coming on the show and that's our show for this week thank you so much for listening this episode was produced by me edited by me music was by the beautiful musical mastermind that is Iora you can check her out on Spotify. She's always got new things bubbling away. And just generally, if anyone wants to come on the pod, you've got a TV-related story to tell, please come the bloody hell along, because I'm always looking for new people. You don't have to be a razzle-dazzle celebrity. You just have to have something to say about television. So come on down. Anyway, that's all, I think. Bye-bye. Thank you.